0: Well, uh, how's everybody doing this morning? Good, I hope. Good. Everybody all right? Good. Good. Uh, my name's Steve Wall and I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church and uh, Robin mentioned it, but uh, I looked at my calendar this morning and noticed there was only 10 days till Christmas and uh, it caught me off guard a little bit, but it, I didn't have to wait till this morning because I did go to the mall yesterday and uh, and realized uh, very quickly that people were grumpier than usual, <laughs> that they were in more of a hurry than usual. That they uh, and, and I love, too, at the mall when you notice that uh, when it snows, like the parking rules go out the window. Have you noticed that? You don't have to actually be within the lines. If you're even close, it counts. And so uh, it's even harder this time of year to find a parking place. And uh, we're in this series called Hope in the Chaos, and we've called it that for a couple reasons. And number one is that, that around this time of year or this time that should be you know, marked by family time and, and celebrating together, uh, there's a lot of chaos in our lives, isn't there? Whether it's around shopping or, or dinners or get-togethers or whatever it is, there, there's a lot of chaos that happens around the holidays. Uh, but, but also, uh, the people of Israel, the people of the nation of Israel, before Jesus came into the world, were in a time of chaos. And, and we see that uh, from this verse that we've kind of marked as our key verse. This is where the idea of hope and the chaos comes from, from Isaiah 9, 6. And it says this, For to us a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, this was a, a prediction or a prophecy of this coming Messiah. So, the Jewish people were waiting for a Savior. They were in a time of chaos, and they wanted a rescuer. And this passage from Isaiah, in those four names that were given to the Messiah, gives us a peek of what they were looking for. And what we've been looking at is how all four of those names, uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace, all four of those were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so two weeks ago, if you were here, we talked about how Jesus is a wonderful counselor. You know, and that word wonderful actually means too great for words. And so Jesus is a counselor who is wonderful. He knows what you're going through. You know, he has the help you need. The great counsel is so important to our ability to make wise decisions. And Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He has the best counsel. And then last week, if you were here, I know Paul Mumal was here. He talked about how Jesus is a mighty God. He reminded us that God is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. That means he he knows all. He is present everywhere. And he is all powerful. And, And Paul talked about how God will use that power in you and for you and through you. And so this week, we come to the third name on that list of four, and it is Everlasting Father. And this is the name that's probably the most personal for us, you know, because uh, it's personal because, you know, a counselor can be a business relationship, right? If you've ever been to a counselor, uh, you know that when you're done with your hour, you have to pay them, right? I mean, it's a business relationship, or at best, maybe it's a pastoral relationship or even a friendship. And so when you think about a counselor, a wonderful counselor, uh, you might think of a business exchange, you know, a mighty God is about a creator, right? It tells us that we are created beings, that we are made by someone or something, uh, someone or something that's more powerful than we are, but it doesn't say anything about our relationship with the creator. But an everlasting father, well, that's family, right? And it's, this is the one name on the list that I think separates Christianity from every other religion. I mean, any other religion I can think of, no other religion, at least none that I can think of, portrays God as a father, as a caring, doting parent who who loves you and desires a relationship with you, a, a father who pursues you. But that's what God is, and that's what uh, the, the Scripture writers tell us that Jesus is, and that's why it's so personal for people. But everlasting father can also be the one concept that's probably the most troubling for some of you. Uh, because for some people, the last thing they want on earth is another daddy. I mean, the last thing you want is a father who is like your father that maybe wasn't around very much. Or, or maybe he was around, but you wish he wasn't. Now, maybe your dad never accepted you, you know, never encouraged you, uh, never affirmed you as a person. And so whenever somebody refers to God as your father, well, you just feel a little bit icky inside. Or, or at best, you're indifferent to that. <clears throat> but today, I hope to change your opinion on that. I mean, I, I want you to see something today that maybe you've never seen in Jesus and it doesn't matter how good your relationship with your father was or how bad it was, it doesn't matter if you had a good dad, like I had a good dad. I mean I have very few bad things to say about my dad as a father, uh, or if you had a horrible dad. There's one thing I know about your father, and that's this your father was not perfect. Your father was not always able to be there for you, or won't always able to be there for you, won't always be able to be there for you. Your father is mortal, he's human, he's imperfect, but Jesus is our everlasting father. Now, the immediate question that comes to mind when you read this is probably, now wait, Isaiah is talking about Jesus, about a child. You know, for unto us a child is born. How can a child be a father? How can an eight-pound, six-ounce baby boy be a dad, right? Uh, or, or in fact, you may have even made the leap that Jesus grew up to be a man, but he never married, and he never had children. Can, can you really call him an everlasting father? Well, yes. The answer is yes. If you're a Christian, there's no question that Jesus is your father. Now, the Apostle John, writing of Jesus, said this in John one twelve: said, Yet to all who did receive him, now talking about Jesus, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So you and I... Uh, if we believe in the name of Jesus, if we accept our adoption into the kingdom of God, we are his children and he is our father, our everlasting father. Now, let's don't be confused about this though, okay? When we talk about Jesus as the everlasting father, we're not, it's not the same thing as God the father, okay? We shouldn't mistake the two and think that they're the same person. They're not. They're two distinct, equal, eternal parts of the same God, but they're not the same. In fact, but, but Jesus can be called our everlasting father for a few reasons. And, and maybe the best um, Way I've ever heard this laid out is by 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon, uh, who points out a few ways that we look at Jesus as our father. He reminds us of these these five things. Number one, Jesus is the head of a tribe. You know, in our case, it's the tribe of people who are no longer under the law, but were under grace. Uh, Number two, Jesus is the father of a system, namely that system that favored bringing heaven to earth. You know, uh, just like we've been involved in our church with this Love Your Neighbor campaign that we're gonna fill you in more about next week, uh, but Jesus is the father of that kind of system where people are doing things for one another, where we're healing the, the sick and we're feeding the poor. Uh, Jesus is the father of that system. Uh, number three, Jesus is the father of salvation by grace. You know, because of Jesus and the price he paid on the cross, you and I can have eternal life with God. And Jesus is the one who introduced that concept to us. He is the father of of that. He is the giver of life. Number four, Jesus is the father of a future age. Scripture tells us, Revelation, the book of Revelation talks about Jesus as a king and that he will reign forever and the people will bow down at his feet and we will be his children and he will be our God. And so number five is this, Jesus is a father by action. You know He's a father to the fatherless, Scripture says. In Jewish custom, when the father was away, uh, it was the role of the elder brother to fill in for the father. And, and Jesus, in a way, holds that office for us. So we're talking about Jesus as the everlasting father, but not Jesus as God the father, just to clear that up. That may be confusing for you, but that's what we're talking about. But Jesus is the everlasting father. But here's the problem with this idea, and I've already alluded to it a little bit. You and I have a picture of what a father should look like. And it might be a picture that comes from our relationship with our own dads, whether it's good or bad, or, or even non-existent. You know, maybe your father was angry all the time, or maybe he was distant, or maybe he was absent, or worse. Or it might be a picture of a father that we get from the media. You know, all of us are bombarded every day with images of fathers, some good and some not so good, uh, that we see on TV. And we, we need to be careful that we don't confuse our everlasting father with the father that we see on TV, whether it's Ward Cleaver or Homer Simpson, you know whether it's Phil Dunphy or Peter Griffin, Jesus is not at all like any earthly father that we know. In fact, when we think of the everlasting father, it's important that we take our cues from who he is, not from the media, but from scripture. And so with that, what I want to do this morning is I want to look at some ways that Jesus, our everlasting father, is not at all like an earthly father. And these are in your notes on the back of your worship program. If you want to follow along, you can do that. Uh, Number one is this. The everlasting father is compassionate, not angry. Psalm 145.8 says it this way. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. And so maybe some of you came from a household with a father who was always angry. You know, maybe you felt like you could never do anything right or, or you were punished a lot. Maybe you were even abused. But that's not the picture we get of the everlasting father. More than 50 times, Scripture refers to God as one who is compassionate. He has compassion on his children. He has compassion on Israel. He shows compassion through specific acts. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love, Scripture tells us. As Jesus walked the earth and encountered sinners, what we find all the time was him rebuking the sinner but then accepting them unconditionally, right, to, to having compassion on those people. Psalm 103 says it this way, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Now, having compassion doesn't mean a father doesn't correct his children. right? In fact, correcting poor behavior is the compassionate thing to do. We, we all have seen, probably in our lives, parents who refuse to tell their children no. And they grow up as spoiled brats, and they grow up to be spoiled, entitled adults. That's not compassionate at all. The Lord corrects and rebukes, but he does it lovingly, and he does it specifically. And a few weeks ago, we talked about the book of Revelation. And that's one of my favorite examples of Jesus rebuking people and doing it lovingly. In that narrative, we get so many pictures and images of what Jesus is like. But one of my absolute favorites is from Revelation 2 and 3, uh, when he's writing these letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And uh, in these letters, he's attempting, Jesus is attempting to correct their behavior. He's sending them a warning, just like a compassionate father will do. So, right, a compassionate father, I think you'll agree with me, doesn't just blow up at his children when he sees them doing something wrong, right? He he tells them, here's what I see you're doing, and you need to change your ways, because here's going to be the consequence if you don't. And that's exactly what Jesus does in these letters. He's going to show them a better direction and give them a consequence. And so here's what will happen if you don't change your ways. And so that's what Jesus does in these letters. In each of these, he starts with this phrase. He says, I know your deeds. He says, I know. You know, to the church in Sardis, Jesus writes, I know your deeds, that you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead inside. And to the church in Laodicea, he writes, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. Oh, how I wish you were one or the other. In all of these, he sends this message. I I know what's happening. I know. He says, I know what you're going through. You You can sense the compassion in Jesus as he rebukes, even as he rebukes and corrects these churches. And it's so important because sometimes we don't think Jesus does know. You know, sometimes we don't understand we don't really believe, maybe, that Jesus knows what we're going through. And so we'll pray, and we'll pray, God, do you know what this feels like right now? You know, but a compassionate father knows. He understands what you're going through. And even more than that, he knows what you've done right and what you've done wrong. And yet he has compassion anyway. I remember when I was a kid, um, after school, we went to this uh, babysitter's house. And my babysitter lived about uh, five doors down from one of my best friend's. And uh, I grew up on the west side of Indianapolis, and uh, our boundaries of our neighborhood were 10th Street and Girl School Road, and and I was never allowed to cross 10th Street because it was a four-lane highway uh, with a median in the center, and so I was probably 11 or 12 years old. I wasn't allowed to cross that street, but my friend's backyard backed up to 10th Street. And the only thing that would draw me across 10th Street was that across 10th Street, there was a Noble Roman's Pizza that also happened to have about six video games in it. And so uh, when I was uh, probably 11, I was at my babysitter's house. About once a week, I'd walk down to my friend's house. She'd let me go, and um, I'd always get this warning but don't you dare cross the street. And so one time I was down at my friend's house, and we were bored, and he said, Hey, why don't we go to Noble Romans? I said, Oh, no, I'm not allowed to go across 10th Street. And he goes, Nobody's going to know. And so uh, my friend and I crossed 10th Street, played asteroids for about two hours, and then walked back. And I came back to my babysitter's house, and uh, she said, Where have you been? I said, well, I was at John's house. She said, no, you weren't. I went down there. I, I was in the backyard, so I looked in the backyard. Well, we might have been playing in his room for a while. Well, I knocked on the door. Nobody answered. She said you crossed Tenth Street, and um, I knew in my heart that this was going to get back to my dad, and uh, I knew my dad wasn't probably just going to lovingly hug me and say uh, it's okay. I knew there was probably a consequence coming for that, and so I did uh, what any uh, smart eleven-year-old boy was do. I started crying. I, uh, I cried. I said, I didn't, I didn't cross the street. It was an ugly cry, let me tell you. Uh, it was, I didn't cross the street. I didn't do it. And the whole, it was probably 3.30 when I got back to my babysitter's house and I knew it was gonna be two hours. I was gonna have two hours of this and the, the pain and the guilt was just, it was, it was eating me up inside, but I knew that the punishment would be worse for me if I didn't, if I told the truth, now parents, I know what you're thinking. You know, parents always say this is going to be bad, worse for me than it is for you. Well, kids know that's not true. I mean, it's always going to be worse for the kid, right? And so, um, my dad got there, and I started crying even harder. And my babysitter told her what she, what she, told him what she thought had happened. And I said, "Dad, didn't cross the street," and um, it was bad because I knew in my heart what I had done, um, but I didn't get punished. And uh, so for the next uh, week or so, every once in a while, I just get this guilty feeling about, you know, that I pulled one over on my dad. And I remember uh, very distinctly, it was a Monday night. I was laying in bed. I remember it was Monday night because my dad was in his room watching Monday night football. And uh, I was laying in my bed, and this sense of guilt just overwhelmed me. And I started crying in my bed, and I, I, I walked up very gingerly into my dad's bedroom and laid down in his bed beside him, and I was crying. And he said, son, what's wrong? And I said, Remember that time that, that you thought I crossed Tenth Street, and I said I didn't. I really did it, Dad. I did it. I crossed Tenth Street. I did it. And he uh, he stopped watching the game, and he turned to me, and he put his arm around me, and he said, "I know. I know." And he had compassion in that way, in the same way, an everlasting Father is compassionate, not angry. I mean, He knows what you're doing. He knows what you're going through, but he has compassion for you. Number two, the everlasting father is loving. He's not distant. Uh, Romans 8, 15 says, the spirit you received does not make us slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. Now there's a lot going on in this verse, okay? There's a lot here. But, but the important thing to understand is, are, there's two words in there I want you to get. One is Adoption. And the other one is this word, Abba. Now, it's so important you understand the context. We're not talking about these guys, okay? We're not talking about the Swedish rock band from the 1970s. If you're like my age or older, you recognize this. If you're younger than me, maybe you know these guys from Mamma Mia, all right? But um, this is not who we're talking about. We're not talking about the people that sang Dancing Queen. That word Abba uh, is an important word. It's the most intimate word for father. In fact, it doesn't mean father. It doesn't even mean dad. It's more like daddy, you know, it's a, it's a term of endearment. It's, that's the way that God wants you to see him. That's what Romans 8.15 says. You know, it's, maybe it's daddy or papa. Uh, this was totally revolutionary at the time. Now, I think about this. The, the Old Testament Jews viewed God with such reverence, uh, such holiness and, and fear, they wouldn't even say his full name, Yahweh. They wouldn't even say it or write his name. You know, they, they held God at a distance. They they couldn't have a personal relationship with him. I mean, unless you were a priest, you weren't even allowed to interact with God. You couldn't enter his presence. Jesus changed all that. When when God decided to come to earth, he didn't come as a king or a warrior. He came as as a little child. He came as a baby, completely dependent on us to survive. And so great was the extent of his love that he wasn't satisfied to stay away in heaven in this perfect place, but he came to earth to walk the same ground that we walk on, to experience the same temptation, and the same heartbreak, and the same rejection that his children would face. You know, that's why Psalm thirty four eighteen says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Why? Because, because Jesus has been here. He knows what we're going through. Now, maybe your father was distant. You know, maybe he was so obsessed with work that he didn't have time to play ball or, or wrestle or come to your tea party. You know, maybe he didn't show affection well, so by the time you reach 10 or 12, your dad stopped giving you hugs or stopped kissing you or... Stop expressing his love that way. But Jesus wants you to see him as a father who is loving, not distant. You know, as parents, we get so caught up in what we're doing and what our kids are doing that we forget just to be with our kids, just to spend time with them. I mean, I love more than anything to see my kids get their chores done. But when that becomes the goal and the directive of my morning or of my life, I've, I've missed the point. You know, I, I, can, I can easily tell them, do your chores, do your homework, get read, but I forget to be with them. Even when we have a date night, which, which I try to do with my girls uh, individually on a regular basis, it can become all about what we're going to do together. So, Audrey, what are we going to do tonight? Where are we going to go eat? What are we going to go see? What are we going to go do? Uh, or, or with Grace, it's the same way. But it, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we go to dinner or, or, or wrestle on the floor or we go shopping or whatever. I just get energy just from being with my kids. Well, God is like that too. He's a loving God. He loves you. He desperately wants to spend time with you. In John 15, Jesus says that we should abide in him. That we should spend time with him, praying to him, reading his word. Abide in me, he reminds us, and you will bear much fruit. Abide in me and my joy will be in you. You know, like a loving father, he wants to be with his children. He says, abide in me, remain in me. Your, ver- your version may say, remain in me. As a child of God, you have the right to call him Abba, you know, to call him daddy, to call him Papa. He's loving, not distant. Number three, the Everlasting Father is affirming, not rejecting. You know, for some of us, we feel like we can never measure up to our father's expectations. It might be something as simple as the grades we make in school or are making in school now. Maybe it's the person we married. Maybe it's the way we parent or raise our kids. Maybe it's a, a career choice we made, or it's a college major or a college that we chose. But but it's hard to be around our dad sometimes because we feel rejected by him. I, I remember <clears throat> when I went off to college, um, I desperately wanted to be in business. Um, I had uh, read the book Wall Street and seen the movie about 20 times before I went to college. It was kind of a, a driving force of mine. I, wanted, I knew I wanted to be in business. But my dad, who was in business, was an engineer by training. And I remember I got all my college acceptance letters and was trying to pick where I was going to go. And uh, I said, I want to go to this school and study business. And he said, no, business is for people who don't understand engineering. That's what my dad told me. And uh, so well, I guess I better go study engineering then. And so I went to Purdue to study engineering for a couple years, and I didn't do very well. And part of it was because I wasn't very good at it. I probably didn't understand it. It was probably true. Uh, But but part of it was just maybe that little rebellion of, well, this is what I know I'm supposed to do, and I didn't want to do it. And so... um, Man, that was tough for me for years, but I ended up, I went back to school and I studied business and I graduated with honors and then I went and got my master's and I graduated with honors and and I proved, you know, that was what I wanted to do. That was what I was passionate about. But years later, my dad made up for this. Years later, he he came up to me and he said, hey, I just want you to know. He said, I had great expectations for you growing up and you have met every one of them. He said, you don't have to do anything else. You don't have to prove anything else to me. He said, you are exactly who you're supposed to be. And that was such a blessing for me. And so dads, I mean, if that's something you haven't shared with your kids, maybe you should do that. But but that's a way that my dad was affirming, not rejecting. Scripture tells us that we are, if we are Christians, we've been adopted by God into his kingdom. And don't mistake adoption for some sort of second-class parenthood because every family I know that has decided to adopt a child uh, loves that child every bit as much if they have um, biological children as their biological children. In fact, there's something special in this relationship that comes from like choosing. A child, David Platt, author David Platt, points out that adoption is never initiated by the child. Like, usually a child doesn't even know they need adopted, but it's the parent, the parent that, that, that wants that. It's the parent who decides to adopt. It's the parent who seeks the child out. And, and so I don't know what your story with God is like. But if you've accepted Jesus as the Lord of your life, if your story, it may start something like this. Like, I was looking for something. I, I knew something was missing. I was searching for God. But way before you did that, He was searching for you. You And you may think, well, I was so far off in the weeds, there's no way that God would have wanted me. But the truth is that our God is affirming, he's not rejecting. And that even in our sin and our rebellion, God was affirming us as his children, not satisfied to leave us alone, orphaned, but desperately longing to welcome us into his kingdom. I I really admire families who decide to adopt children or those who take on foster children because there's so much uncertainty especially in a child that has a past. You know, when you adopt an older child or you know, when, when a baby's born, especially when it's yours, but when there's a baby born, there, there's so much possibility, right? You see those, that beautiful little face and those chubby cheeks and the, the fat feet and the little fingers that wrap around, can barely wrap around your pinky, and you can look at that. You can love a child like that. It's easy to love a child like that. But when a child grows up a little and, and starts to sin and misbehave and maybe even gains a reputation... That child's much tougher to love. And that's what foster parents and sometimes adoptive parents face uh, they, when they take on this child that's a little bit older. I, I love how Dr. Russell Moore says this um, about, about adoption. He says, imagine for a moment. I want you to imagine this with me. Imagine for a moment you're adopting a child. As you meet with the social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things and attempted, attempting repeatedly to skin animals alive. He acts out sexually, the social worker says, although she doesn't really fill you in on what that means. She continues with a little family history. The boy's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. Each of them ended their own lives. Think for a minute. Would you want this child? If you did adopt him, wouldn't you watch nervously as he played with your other children? Would you watch him nervously as he looks at the knife on the kitchen table? Would you leave the room as he watched a movie on TV with your daughter with the lights out? Well, he's you, and he's me. That's what the gospel is telling us. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Your version may say affirms, the spirit affirms that we are God's children. God is not disappointed in you. He's not rejecting you. He knew exactly what he was getting when he adopted you. You're not a mistake. You're not an accident. You are not a reject. You are a child of the most high God. You are created in his image for a purpose and you are loved and affirmed by him. Number four is this. The everlasting father is giving, not withholding. Romans 8, 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. What an incredible thought that we are co-heirs with Christ. That's the generous God that we serve. I mean, just, just think that, that the same glory afforded to Jesus from God the Father is available to you and me. And it doesn't matter what our past is or what sin we've committed. It doesn't matter you know, where we've come from or what our family history is. I mean, the beautiful thing about adoption is just that. Think about it. When you're adopted into a family, the the family you came from doesn't matter anymore. All of your rights and privileges are afforded to you by being adopted into that family. You have the same rights as a natural born child. Your old family history doesn't matter anymore. It's the adopted family that determines what your inheritance is like. And, you know, if you think about it, the best gift any father can give It's not a roof over his kid's head or food on their table. It's not a big Christmas with lots of gifts. Now, listen to me, Dad. Sometimes we get this wrong, okay? Moms and dads both, but dads often carry the weight of this uh, when when dads are the provider. There's so much pressure to work harder and work longer and earn more money to buy more stuff or better stuff. But, But I promise you, in a few years, your son or daughter would much rather have more of your time and attention than a new iPad. The best gift a father can give is an inheritance, and I don't mean a financial inheritance. I, I mean a legacy—you know, something to remember, something to guide them. Here's what I mean by that, okay? In, in, in 20 years, most of our children won't remember what we got them for Christmas this year. We won't remember where we took them for—they won't remember where we took them for dinner on their birthday, uh, or or any physical gift that we gave them. But we will remember the times that we followed hard after God. They will remember us seeing us read our Bibles or or praying with them. They'll remember the time we spent with them and the memories we gave them. Dads and moms, your time, your attention, your affection, your leadership, your love, that's the best gift that you can give your children. I mean, think about how this played out with Jesus. By the end of his three years in ministry, he had certainly become a father figure of sorts for the disciples. He he led them, he, he taught them, he invested in them. And then right at the end of the day, uh, the, right at the end, right the day before he was to be arrested, he led them to the upper room of a house in Jerusalem. And, and they surely didn't know what was going to happen that day or the next day, but, but Jesus did. He knew that he would be betrayed and captured and tried and brutally beaten and killed. But he wanted to leave a legacy for his disciples and for his children. The, the disciples may have thought uh, that they were just getting a meal that day but they left with a powerful memory, the tradition of communion. It's one that we remember and participate uh, on a regular basis here at Genesis Church, and it's one that we get to celebrate today. And so here's what we're going to do. The communion tables are set up in the front and in the back. There's two here, and there's two um, right back by the stage. Um, As soon as I'm done here, you're welcome to come up and grab the elements. You'll grab a cup, but there's actually two cups. Uh, The bread is on the bottom. uh, The juice is on the top. Um, Here's what we believe about communion at Genesis Church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to take communion. You don't have to be a member of this church or a part of any other church, um, but you can do that. Why don't you go grab those elements, bring them back to your seat, and then we'll walk through communion together. The Apostle Paul um, wrote of communion in 1 Corinthians 11. As he was writing to the church in Corinth, instructing them on how to take that. This is what he wrote, First 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord uh, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take that bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take that together. And then he wrote, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we just go into a moment of prayer, would you bow your heads with me? I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful for this picture I get as, of Jesus as the everlasting Father, this Father who is loving and compassionate and generous and in so many ways like an earthly father, but in so many ways just not at all like an earthly father, but, but perfect and eternal and um, here for us all the time and, and, and just the, the love that we see all throughout the Scripture as Jesus um, walks the earth and heals the sick and feeds the poor, is the same love that he has for you and me today. So, um, God, I just thank you for that love. I thank you for that picture that we get of, of you as a compassionate father, as, of Jesus as our, as our uh, eternal father, everlasting father. God, I thank you for the, the time that we get to share communion and that we can remember your death on the cross and what you did for us, God, but that we can also remember at that same time that you didn't stay dead, that, uh, by by you, by the power of God you're raised from the dead and because of that we can overcome anything in our lives and so God we just thank you today for this picture of your love. God as we go into a time of worship we just want to remember that and lift that up to you now in Jesus name. Amen.